When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Just a quick reminder that you can get the English Heritage Podcast every Thursday. Make sure to subscribe using your chosen platform. Now, when people think of the medieval peasants, they may conjure up images of the character Baldrick from the TV series Blackadder, who's arguably become the poster boy of peasantry. For most, the term peasant suggests poverty, ignorance, missing teeth, threadbare rags and poor personal hygiene. But how close is this negative image to the truth? And what was daily life actually like for people who were called serfs? so had limited freedom, whose land was rented from a demanding lord, and who were living on quite small holdings of land. Well, joining us to reveal all are English Heritage Properties historian Al Oswald and Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Leicester, Christopher Dyer, who were both involved in the investigations at the famous deserted medieval village of Warren Percy in North Yorkshire. Chris, How would you define a peasant? It's interesting that we have to ask this question because, of course, it's it's not an English word, or at least it's not a word with English origin. It just means country people. And uh, the reason why we have problems with it is that we don't have any peasants in England uh, so we most of us have never met a peasant, so we you know they're, they're not familiar but uh, if you want to ask what they were like in the past, then the answer is that they are small cultivators. They have a, a relatively small area of land, absolute maximum fifty acres of land, and uh, they've got enough to live on, but not enough to be rich and What follows from that is that they are relatively low status people. They depend on their families for their labor and and uh, and, and they they cooperate with their neighbors because they need to so um yeah it, it it's just it's just a, someone who, who lives by cultivating a small area of land i think if, if I could add to that, there's a bewildering array of different terms that are used to describe peasants, so you'll hear these expressions like villain and serf and bordar and cotar, and there are all these different socio-economic grades of peasant. So I think the message that will probably come through over the course of this podcast is that one size doesn't fit all, that we have this kind of generic term, peasant, that actually underneath that there's an awful lot of diversity. How do the peasants of the Middle Ages connect with earlier times then? And also what happens to the peasants in modern times? So if we go way back to, I guess, Anglo-Saxon medieval times, uh, you know, post-Roman how do those peasants compare to the middle of the Middle Ages and, and then the early modern period, for example? Well, you can go back earlier than that. I mean, there are obviously small farms in the Roman period. There are small farms in the Iron Age. And uh, I think that we could correctly describe them as peasants as well. As far as we can see in the Anglo-Saxon period, the pre-conquest period, there are people with the, who would fit the definition, people with... 15 acres of land, that sort of uh, figure. There are the cotars that Al mentioned as well. There are smallholders. So so there isn't a big transformation, really. It goes on. But the transformation comes in modern times because between the 15th and the 19th century, we lost the peasants. Big farms took over the countryside. uh, And uh, therefore, we have lost connections with the peasant world. But that's not true on the continent. There are lots of small farmers in the continent. That's not true of Ireland, for example. So we're peculiar in our difficulty in not having any um, part of our modernization process, I suppose. Yeah, so more of us are city folk or townsfolk as opposed to country folk these days. Mm. And, And also we don't need to grow our own food, broadly speaking, because it's available either via imports or it's available from the local shop. Mm. 
So that's that's where the world has changed, effectively. Yes, well, we've desperately tried to struggle back to that because some of us have allotments or big gardens and try and grow as much of our food as we can. Yes. Uh, in fact, I was accused by another historian of being a peasant because I do have an allotment. Okay. Well, hopefully he didn't use it in a pejorative sense. So, <laughs> I don't think he did. <laughs> no. There was, there was a, a very interesting discussion I stumbled across on the internet recently about someone who'd grown up in rural France, and she recalled her grandparents referring to themselves as paysans without a hint of shame or anything. They, they just were referring to themselves as country people. So, you know, within living memory, certainly up until the French Revolution that France was essentially a peasant country. Russia, right through to the middle of the 19th century, was was a peasant country. So, As have most countries around the world been, I'm sure, because, you know, that was the way that you survived, growing your own produce, raising your own livestock, etc. So what is this negative problem with peasants? Where does that come from? <laughs> where do I start? I mean, it's an insult. I mean, many of the, uh, I mean, Al just gave an example of people who were proud to call themselves peasants, but the word peasant and the words that they used in the Middle Ages for peasant, boor, villain, these are not positive terms, are they? They're disparaging, they're despising peasants. And I suppose you could say that educated and upper class people, if you like, try to justify their own superiority by thinking of peasants as barbaric, lazy, ugly, you know, there were so many negative concepts associated with peasants. But um, uh, of course, then there's another side to this, which is the absurd, unrealistic, positive image they had. You know, people in the Middle Ages used to talk about peasants being hardworking, supporting others, being honest, essential, members of society, dutiful, and so on, which, uh, of course, didn't quite fit. So uh, we've inherited from the Middle Ages a combination of both negative and positive attitudes towards peasants. But the common attitude now is to regard them as, well, stupid, conservative, unproductive, people who have to be, you know, got rid of in order to have an efficient, modern system of, uh, of, of uh, agriculture and so on. And yet, all the evidence we have suggests that they're really quite intelligent and uh, were able to adapt to new circumstances and they changed their farming methods and so on. Mm. Let me just give you one example to show how we've um, misunderstood them. I suppose everyone has this image of the peasant at table scoffing food <laughs> without ceremony or without uh, restraint. And uh, if you have bad table manners now, you'll say, oh, you peasant, people will say. Well, we know that in the Middle Ages, peasants washed their hands before they ate. They had equipment on the table which allowed them to wash their hands. Now, there's uh, you know something which uh, is rather unexpected in view of their generally negative image. For me, I think the um, part of the problem with it is that we're talking about a sector of the population who, you know, about the time of the, the Norman Conquest, probably made up. 90% of, of the British population, and that declines to, I would guess, around 80% by the about 1500 or so. But, you know, we've very much inherited a one-sided view of, of peasantry. We're getting the, what the elite thought of peasants, really, rather than what the vast majority of the population thought of themselves. So I think a lot of the problem with it is that we're allowing the writers of history to give us the full story. And, and actually, there's part of what we want to do as historians and archaeologists is, is allow people's voices to come through that aren't being heard. And in this case, I think all those insulting terms that, that Chris just mentioned give you a very strong impression of, of who's writing the history, really. Well, let's try and bust some of those myths then. Chris, did peasants own their own land? I think the technical answer to it is that they possessed it. In other words, they were tenants. The lords thought the land belonged to them and that they could rent it out to tenants. And in theory, they could take it back. But in fact, eviction's extremely rare. On the whole, peasants, they thought that they owned the land. Essentially, they were in control of it. They were responsible for its cultivation. They passed it on to their children by rules of inheritance. So they thought of it as uh, really as, as belonging to them, though, as I say, technically speaking, they were 
just tenants, and the Lord always was in the background, influencing the way in which they use the land. You say that, Chris, but there are, I mean, there are also the free peasants who do own their own land, so they've got a little bit more freedom, a little bit more responsibility. Well, yes, I, I mean, you're quite right to mention them, but remember then that no one is completely free of the tie of tenancy. I mean, free tenants still pay the rent to the law. It often was quite small, but they did have obligations to the Lord, and the Lord could take their land over if, for example, there was a failure of, a, of inherit, mm. inheritance, if the inheritable succession stopped. So the, even the free tenants are not in total control of their land. Indeed. There's one thing I wanted to bring up about. There's a, a common min- misconception about common land as well, because I think the impression we have today of what common land is, is that it's accessible and usable by everybody. But that's actually very much a, a post-First World War concept. The right to roam. Indeed, yes. And that was part of giving back to the millions who'd fought for their country access to the England they'd fought for kind of thing, the Britain they'd fought for. But actually in the Middle Ages, common land was thoroughly owned by the Lord of the Manor and use of that land was restricted to, say, for example, around around York, where I live, we have four major medieval commons, and the rights to use that land for grazing were restricted very much to the sort of the middle class, the relatively wealthy merchants who lived in the city, not to the people who dwelled in the villages outside on whose land the common actually lay. So, yeah, that, I think that's a, that's a myth. You mentioned myth-busting. Common land is one of them. Hmm. Yes, common land belongs to the commoners, so to speak. Or they, that's, again, they would tend to think of it as their land. But uh, as you say, it, it's not, it doesn't belong to everybody. You have to have a stake in the, in, in, in the other land in the village to qualify for common rights. So going back to what you were saying earlier about free peasants and the ones who were working for lords, it's, it's a nuanced answer, really, isn't it? It's... Some work for their lords, others seem to work for themselves mm. as a way of surviving. Were they exploited by the lords if they were working directly for lords? Well, th- th- remember, everyone does both in a way, that uh, when the lords are demanding labour on their land, remember, lords have land and they don't have much labour, so they require their tenants to work on the land. I mean, normally the amount of of labour they require is, say, three days a week, two days a week, that sort of figure. So the other days are available for the peasant to work on their own land. So there's a mixture of, of work for the Lord and work for themselves. And one shouldn't exaggerate it too much. The free tenants that Al's mentioned did very little work at all. So it, it wasn't the norm, if you like, to spend every day working for the Lord. That was a, an extra, if you like, on, on, on which varied from one category of tenant to another. But uh, they resented it. They didn't like working for the Lord. There's lots of references to them being lazy and not turning up on time and not doing the work very well. Forced labour is always inefficient labour because people don't have the heart in it. They don't reap the rewards and so they don't uh, put an effort into it. And uh, what the peasants preferred to do was to pay a rent. They were willing to pay a, a rent in money because that meant they had to sell produce, uh, you know, take it to market, get the money, pay the Lord. But that for them was much preferable, much more flexible, much more under their own control than having to turn up early in the morning on a cold day to plough for the Lord. And it's worth saying as well that it wasn't just ploughing, that, that wasn't their, it wasn't just the agricultural chores that they had to do. They had other responsibilities from time to time as the Lord decreed. For example, if you go, if anyone goes to visit Dunstanborough Castle up in Northumberland, which I would certainly recommend, another English heritage property, you go and look at the seaward wall of that castle in other words, the least vulnerable wall. And it's not high-quality masonry like the rest of the, of the perimeter. It's basically flung together with boulders from the beach. You can see that it's actually built in a series of short sections, and I think it's very likely that that was built by the, the peasants for the Lord. They also did things like clearing out trackways and improving roads. So I remember, well remember when Filingdale's Moor in North Yorkshire burnt in 2003, alongside all the medieval trackways, 
you could see stones that had been the big awkward stones that had been hoiked out of the bottom of the track and thrown up to either side. So alongside all these big, deep medieval trackways were sort of scatters of stone that had been cleared, presumably by the peasants. Am I right in saying that peasants existed in groups within communities on land, whether it belonged to a lord or not? The Irish call peasant, they don't use the word peasant because it's insulting again, they call them family farms. And that, in many ways, is quite an accurate description of the peasants uh, on on this side of the Irish Sea as well. I mean, the basic unit of of society was the family or the household. I say the household because sometimes there would be parents and children, but there would also be servants living in, one or two servants living in with the family and obviously working working that helped to work the land. So, yes, the family is, is really crucial to the organisation of a peasant society. And uh, a relatively small proportion of the population were not within a family, were not were single or whatever. I mean, a lot of the single people were widows, in fact, so, you know, they had once belonged to a family. I mean, particularly women, of course, are very much bound up in the economy of the holding. They're very much sharing in the work and uh, they're doing household tasks, but they're also, uh, as an extension of that, they're brewing ale and selling it or they're, they're making cheese and selling that. So they have little businesses on the side, if you like, and, and they have to turn out to help with the, the more urgent tasks like weeding the corn or harvesting the corn in the, at, the end, at the end of the growing season. So, yes, the family is, 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 is really quite crucial. And uh, it's obviously very valuable to the peasant in charge of the holding to have that uh, labour force, if you like, that very motivated labour force tied to helping with the land. I mean, there are tensions, of course. I mean, we shouldn't idealise these families. Some uh, heads of household, uh, they're mostly men, of course, are tyrannical, if you like. The children resent them. There's a lot of uh, tension of that kind. And there's a problem, there's a very uh, tremendously unfair inheritance system by which the eldest son is often the successor. And that means that the other sons uh, are not inheriting. They, are, they have to make their own way of the land in the world and the, and the daughters also. So it's, uh, one shouldn't think of families as sort of cosy and, uh, and, and cohesive because uh, there are difficulties as well. Was there competition to have the best crop and be able to sell it for the highest <laughs> price at market or, or that sort of thing? Well, I mean, uh, people wanted to do as well as they could for themselves. So uh, I suppose that they would compare themselves with their neighbours. And they used to grumble about neighbours who didn't weed their land properly or, you know, in other words, didn't contribute to the good husbandry of the village. You know, that could be a problem. I think the point is that the open field system, as it's called, so this system of having three large blocks of individual strips of fields, is essentially a, a communal system. So, you know, you can't have one of those thin strips of land well cultivated and the one next door badly cultivated or not looked after at all. So that there, I think there is a big sort of communal responsibility, sense of responsibility there. And it's partly based around agricultural practice but in due course really peasants take on a lot of responsibilities communally so from uh, when is it 1343 or something when peasants are tasked by government to collect their own taxes that sort of thing but I should imagine living in a community cuts both ways that you know it's it's all very well as long as you as long as you can rub along reasonably easily with your neighbours but if a community turns against you I would imagine it's not a very nice place to be more or less as people say in modern villages today you know that actually if you find yourself ostracised by the community wrongly perhaps then it's a very difficult and you're suddenly kind of outside the community and it's not at all easy. Yes we certainly see that in suburbia and <laughs> in, in cities don't we about unkempt gardens and things. I mean, one's very aware of, of, of selfish people who are, for example, the rules of the village will be that you can only keep 30 sheep on the fields, you know, otherwise it'll be overgrazed and, and you get people with 40 and 50 sheep ignoring the rule and, and getting into trouble with their neighbours. So, so uh, you may get um, 
good people being ostracized, but you also got a lot of <laughs> uh, ambitious, uh, ruthless, um, selfish people to control. Mm. Given the human predilection for selfishness, shall we say, over community sometimes, mm. were some peasants more ambitious than others and wanted to climb up the, the scale? Were they socially mobile, these peasants, or were they more or less locked into a certain fate? Mm. Well, the old negative view would be that they're stuck in the mud, they stay in the same village for the, their generation after generation, they have no ambition, they have the, roughly the same size of holdings. You know, you find that place like Warren Percy, for example, almost everybody has has a bovate of 14 acres or whatever. There is that idea of, a, of an egalitarian static society, which is totally untrue. And uh, I mean, one feature, for example, is people finding employment doing crafts, you know, that uh, you, you, you get people involved in industry in various ways. You get people, after all, moving. And uh, take Warren Percy as one's example as well. You find people called Warren in villages all around Warren Percy. Obviously, people have moved from one village to another. You find people in York called Warren who have obviously were born in Warham and then uh, then moved to the town. So people are moving around physically, but they're also ambitious and, and, and want to improve themselves. And the best example of all, of course, are the people within the village who accumulate land in order to become what the French call the cock of the village, you know, the people with the largest holding uh, who can therefore have more wealth, but also more authority and more status than their neighbours. And uh, one's very conscious that that's happening in the period after the Black Death in particular, after 1350. You find uh, more and more people with three or four holdings of land, which have previously belonged to separate families, being taken over by one family, and they are becoming a sort of dominant factor in the village. So that, if you like, that's one ingredient in the death of the peasantry, because uh, these large units eventually become the big farms of modern times. Interesting. So they almost become the lords themselves, in a way. <laughs> so as the Middle Ages progress, you get people who are pursuing their specialisms increasingly and following trades alongside farming and eventually in place of farming. So you start to get surnames like Thatcher or Shepherd or Plowright or Smith or Reeve or Dyer, Chris. That's another one. And these are people who are pursuing their own skills alongside farming. So yes, I think that's important to recognise. Broadly speaking then, it was a struggle for survival, but the people who were the best at certain things could ensure that their family unit survived into the next generation. Mm. Yes, well, they didn't all die. Uh, no. Of course, we know, for, for, I mean, one of the most vivid pieces of evidence that we have from Warren Percy and from other sites is are their bones, because they tell us something about their expectation of life, you know, and uh, their diseases and the problems they had. And that's not entirely a happy picture, you know, with a lot of children dying before they reach adulthood, a lot of uh, a very slow growth among adolescents, you know, they're, they're at 14, and they were really still quite small. And uh, once they get through to about 20, they have an expectation of life uh, of another 20 or 30 years. But there aren't many people over 70 around. And uh, obviously, they've had hard lives. And sometimes you can see that in their bones, you know, that they're marked with periods of hunger or periods when they were very ill and so on. So it's not a happy picture. They're the people are not living a happy, fulfilled, healthy life. But on the other hand, as you say, some people did have some success. Some people did achieve some prosperity. They were able to take advantage of the market. They were able to sell things. And, and so they could increase their income in money in a way that hadn't been available to peasants before, shall we say, 1100. They do have that ability to take advantage of a, a commercial world. So um, yes, their experiences are very variable. They're certainly disadvantaged compared with modern populations, but uh, they're not uniformly miserable and poor. We've mentioned Warren Percy a few times now, and it's probably worth explaining what that is. We should say that English heritage cares for several deserted medieval villages, and Warren Percy is one of the most famous of these. 
Al, could you start us off by describing where Warren Percy is and why it's an important place for understanding peasants' lives? Warren Percy is about three quarters of an hour's drive, sort of northeast of York, almost exactly halfway actually between York and the coast at Scarborough, Scarborough Castle, another property worth visiting. And it's on the Yorkshire Wolds, which are a, a chalk plateau that stretches all the way to the sea. So the nearest town is Moulton, but really Warren Percy feels very isolated, very remote. It's perched on the side of a, a valley above a little stream. And I think part of the reason it attracted archaeological attention is that it's such a beautiful place to be. So it's important because it's one of the largest deserted medieval villages in Britain. It's also amongst the best preserved. So although there aren't any standing buildings apart from the church, you can see the outlines of lots of the houses and barns and the plot boundaries and the trackways on on the surface as humps and bumps. So compared with lots of deserted medieval villages in the Midlands and the south of England, where the buildings were constructed entirely out of organic materials, so it's, it's really difficult to detect where buildings stood and, where, and what they were like. It's quite different. The, the experience you get as a visitor is, is quite dramatically different. But I think it's fair to say that what, what really made it important is not its size or its preservation, but actually the intensity of historical and archaeological research that's been invested in trying to understand what life was like there for a peasant community. Yes, we'll get on to that. Um, how does it get its name of Warren Percy then? That's two names in one, isn't it? So does Percy relate to somebody's surname? It does indeed, yes. So there are three villages in the area surnamed Percy, and they all belong to the Percy family. But just before you get overexcited, this isn't the Percy family who built Walkworth Castle and Annick and who were present at Agincourt and Shrewsbury and other major battles. Certainly later Percys claimed that they were related to the big important Percys, but it's more than likely that they were actually just a sort of servant who took the name of his of his lord, which was quite a common thing to do. So they aren't necessarily anywhere near as noble as the Annick Percys. That's the easy bit in a way. The Warren bit is a bit more tricky. It's long been agreed that the Warren element means at the bends. So whether it's Old English or Old Norse, given that we are in a part of the country that was settled by the Vikings from the 10th century onwards, the at the bends bit was long thought to apply to bends in the valley, although that was never very satisfactory because there aren't really major bends at that point in the valley. But the latest theory, which is only 10 years old or so, is that actually there was a prehistoric, a late Iron Age trackway across what was then a bleak, characterless expanse of open grassland. And in order to cross the valley that Warham overlooks, the trackway made a big switchback. And so that the bends being referred to are the bends in the trackway that people would have seen as a sort of landmark at a time when there were relatively few other landmarks to cling on to. So that was what differentiated that particular place from the rest of this vast expanse of high grassland. Interesting. It's worth saying that a name like Warham and many other village names all over England are a product of popular speech. You know, that they're, I mean, if you lived in Warham, you called it the village. But if you lived outside Warham in the surrounding villages like uh, Fixendale or Settrington or whatever, you needed a name to describe the village at Warham. And so it's them who would have perhaps coined the word Warham. But Percy will be added on by officials later on because they would want to distinguish when they were writing a tax record or a legal record of some kind, they would want to distinguish between Warham Percy and Warhamless Street and you know, other places called Warham. So the Percy name is really, it's an aristocratic name, of course, and it's also really the product of people, officials and so on, living a long way away from the village. So, And in fact, in the Middle Ages, you find there are other ways of referring to Warham. Well, normally it's just referred to as Warham, and on one occasion it's called Warham in the Wolds, which is a very graphic description of its uh, of its location. 
How big was Warren Percy then? It's quite a long strip. And in terms of walking through it, you can probably get from one end to the other, from north to south, in five or ten minutes. So it's not, it's not enormous. But in terms of the number of houses there, I suppose at its maximum, the number of houses that we can detect on the surface as humps and bumps is about 40. So, um, you know, rule of thumb of size of families and so on. I guess that you're looking at perhaps 200, 250 people in terms of population size. And do we know how long it was occupied for before it became deserted? We can say at least 600 years is the short answer. It used to be thought that based on a reference of about 1500 AD to the eviction of four families and the deliberate dismantling of their homes by Baron Hilton, who was the lord of the manor at that time, it used to be thought that that was the sort of snuffing out of the village. But actually there is some evidence that a a few properties lingered on for perhaps a generation after that and were still tilling the fields. And it's only in the 1520s that the last of the arable fields are put down to grass, basically. So that really, I think, in my mind, marks the end of the village, although there is probably one medieval house that survives right through till the 1630s and is the, is the sort of chief farmhouse of a, a rather larger farm holding there. The origins of the village are what are really contentious, I think, because, again, it used to be thought that it was a sort of late Saxon origin somewhere in, in the 10th century roundabout that the village as we see it today came into existence but in the early 2000s which was 10 years after the excavations had finished I went back there and looked in great detail at the humps and bumps and did a survey of the humps and bumps and at the same time a geophysical survey was done and that unexpectedly revealed things that weren't visible on the surface these little enclosures which appeared to have single buildings set inside them. And debate broke out immediately over whether this was the origins of the village, the Middle Saxon origins of the village, somewhere between 650 and 850. That was one school of thought. The other school of thought was, no, this isn't a a village as such at all. These are itinerant shepherds coming up from the Vale of York with their flocks for the summer months. And essentially, they kind of stay in the same place close to the water source each summer for a few months to graze their flocks there and then return to the lowlands. And that school of thought was, well, this isn't a village at all. It's just it's just a sort of summer camp. So at both ends of that 600 years that I mentioned, there's some uncertainty, I suppose you could say. I think it's, it's worth saying as well, of course, that there's uh, before the Middle Ages, there are people living there. There are people in the Roman period and in the Iron Age and so on. So it, it really is a a story of almost continuous settlement, at least on a small scale. And in fact, the settlement, although, as Al quite rightly says, it was abandoned really in the late 15th, early 16th centuries, around about 1500, there was just one family living there almost all through modern times. And in fact, uh, in the 1960s, one of the cottages there was still inhabited. So it's a wonderful story of continuous occupation of the same place over millennia, really. But as Al says, as as a big thriving village, it has this more limited life of of about 600 years. And it does seem to have this hiatus in the middle of the 17th century, Hmm. where there's absolutely no one living there. Yes, okay, yes, yes. Apart from the clergyman. The cottages are a late development, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's a bit of clinging on towards the latter phase, isn't it, before it becomes the property of the nation? I mean, people talk about, use the phrase, the sort of rise and fall of the village. And I think it gives the idea of this kind of steady trajectory upwards and downwards again. And I think actually, there are times all through its history when things could have gone very differently. And so you've got these big macroeconomic factors in the background, like the rise of the wool industry and so on. But also you've got individual decisions by individual people, which affect the form of the village as it survives. And I think clinging on is perhaps the wrong term. You know, there was a family making a very good living there. They weren't clinging on to village life. They just had a freestanding farm that was doing very nicely. Thank you. There's a story of migration here. I remember I was saying that contrary to the myth of the peasants stuck in the same place forever, people were moving in and out all the time. And 
I suppose that uh, for two or three hundred years, they tended to move in. And then for the next couple of hundred years, really from the early 14th century right through to the 60th, they were tending perhaps sometimes just to stay for a short time and then move on. So there's a, a lot of individual decisions to stay or to move, depending you know, on what the village had to offer. So it's not really a question of whether it was deserted or not. It was kind of like... Who was the last person to uh, leave, really? <laughs> Who shut the last door, yes. Or at what point do you cease to call it a village, really? You know, it's, it's at what point does it go from being a community to being a, fam- a single family, I suppose, is the other way of looking at it. Can we place, then, who was the last person or the last people to leave? We do know the name of the last tenant of the village. His name was John Richardson. He was running a fairly prosperous, fairly large farm, dominated by sheep. And he moved out in 1636. He moved to the nearby village of North Grimston. And at that point, his house was dismantled and the village was deserted again. But the interesting thing is that his house, which I think I can pinpoint, is a medieval house. It's in a strange position and it's a pretty large house. And I think it was probably built towards the end of the 14th century, sometime after the Black Death, because of the strange position it's built in you can actually see that the building encroaches onto the track in front of the house and encroaches onto the neighbour's plot. And that's the sort of breakdown in planning laws that you get after a a major plague. There's a striking piece of archaeological evidence, in fact, because in the early excavations, they actually found a skeleton inside one of the houses crushed by the the collapse of the wall and the, the ruin of the house, as if some vagrant, or perhaps it was the last inhabitant, was sleeping inside a, a ruined house and it uh, and died there. So, you know, there is a piece of archaeological evidence of at least a, a last visitor, if you like. Chris has mentioned their archaeological digs. Can you tell us about any more that have taken place? Because, Chris, you were in, involved personally, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, yes, the, the Morris Beresford started digging there in, I think, 1949, or was it 48? Anyway, a, a, a very long time ago. And, uh, and, and it's not 1950, his... actually. He visited in 1948. Yeah. Anyway, after a, a small-scale, big and rather amateurish beginning, an inspector of ancient monuments working for what was then the Ministry of Works was excited by the idea of digging more scientifically and uh, systematically. So John Hurst came in and ran a sort of wonderful excavation, a large-scale excavation, stripping the whole house at a time. And that major excavation then spread to other parts of the village, and uh, and that work continued until, now I should remember the dates, around about 1990. 1990. 1990. Yes. And I think the exciting thing about that excavation was not just all the interesting stuff that was found and the questions that were asked and the answers that the excavations gave. But it was also that it attracted people from all over the country, indeed all over the, over Europe. And there was a sort of constant dialogue and discussion and going on. Uh, new interpretations were being developed, which could be applied in other villages. So it was a, what was a, an archaeological season lasting only three or four weeks. Someone described it as a continuous seminar about about rural settlement, which was a yes. tremendous source of new ideas and and new and new interpretations. Yes, both as you're aware, both John Hurst and Morris Beresford died in the early two thousands. But I was delighted that I was able to take them both round after I'd done my research there and present them with the new ideas that were coming. And they were both so open. You know, it could they could have been really resentful that after all their four decades of work there that someone had come along and challenged them but not at all they were absolutely open to new ideas and really excited about it it was it was wonderful Hmm. they looked at six major areas so they looked at the post-medieval farmstead parts of which still stand there they looked at that to see if there was any evidence of continuity from the middle ages into the post-medieval period and and what they demonstrated is that there was this complete break in in occupation in the middle of the 17th century. They also looked at the medieval vicarage and its successors and the church and part of the graveyard. They looked at that part of the graveyard where no gravestones still stood, so in other words an anonymous area. 
they looked at a pair of very large peasant longhouses at the south end of the village, and they looked at a sequence of small peasant houses in the centre of the village, which unexpectedly revealed the posh stone undercroft of what is probably the manor house built by the Percys when they first set up there in 1179. And they also looked at the watermill, and uh, that was a key part of village life mm. as well. Yes, the pond, as well as the mill. I mean, it was a tremendous Indeed. source of, 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 of information. And the pond, as we know from documents, was being used as a, as a fish pond. Oh, in fact, there were two mills. We don't know exactly where the second one was, do we? But they were both being used as fish ponds at various points in their life, which is typically efficient, I would say. But the excavations also sampled little bits of all sorts of other things all over the village, so boundaries and fields and trackways. And the amazing thing is, you know, this 40 years of work, 40 years of digging, and you stand back and look at the area that's been excavated, and it's still actually a tiny proportion of the village as a whole. Amazing. That leads to the next question, which I suppose is, will there be any more digs that uh, will be taking place? I think that, that we've reached a time with Warham, actually, where continuing to invest in that one site is probably not the best use of resources. We need to sort of broaden things out now. And, you know, other people are excavating other medieval settlements around the country, and that's contributing to a, a broader picture. I think if people ever do go back to Warham to excavate, it will be with some quite tightly focused questions. And in a sense, research is still going on. So we've mentioned the churchyard and, and the bodies that were, that were buried there. There were nearly 800-odd bodies excavated from the churchyard. And you may have noticed that from time to time, stories pop up in the news about research that's going on using new scientific techniques. So, for example, I think it was 2017, there was a story that made the papers about zombies and 10 bodies which hadn't been buried in the churchyard, which were buried up on the plateau in between medieval houses in pits, which showed signs of having been mutilated after death, having in some cases had their heads cut off and the bodies burned. And this was in, interpreted as evidence for people preventing these their malicious spirits from, so they're presumably people who'd done something wrong. It was a way of preventing them from coming back from the dead. But they were local people, as far as we could tell. They'd been brought up on the chalk, we could tell from their teeth. So there's all, all sorts of, although the excavations have stopped, it's not true to say that the research has stopped. That's still going on. Yes, this idea of reverence, I think we've covered in a previous podcast with Dr. Michael Carter from English Heritage. So these excavations, do they tally with historical sources? Do they tell us more than we knew from historical documents? We are very dependent on the archaeology for knowledge about Warren because the documents are not very rich. Uh, because the Percy family didn't preserve their archive, we don't have the sort of great abundance of records that one gets for some villages. So we're really dependent on a few a few documents and, uh, and, and a great wealth of archaeology. But still, you can still compare the archaeological evidence with the sort of general historical evidence from other places, because after all, no place is completely uh, distinct and, 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 and special. I think the main thing that comes across is, in fact, the rebuilding of the image of the peasant that we were talking about at the beginning, because when excavations began, John Hurst had very much in mind an idea of peasants as being very poor and miserable and technically incompetent, and he believed that the houses were built out of branches, not proper timbers, and they were temporary, and they they had to be replaced every 20 or 30 years. I mean, we now know that's completely wrong. <laughs> he himself agreed that it was completely wrong, that the houses were, in fact, rather substantial. And there's a good deal of documentary evidence, historical evidence that supports that idea that uh, when a peasant built a house, he or she you know, um, used um, trained craftsmen and, and the best materials available and so on. There's a, a remaking of a whole picture of medieval life has emerged from a combination of the excellent work that's been done at Warham and the archaeological work that's been done at Warham and the uh, reinterpretation of the documents. 
So a lot of um, disciplines collaborating there, which is great and giving us a, a fuller picture. For people who want to see their own medieval village, which may have been lost to time, there are quite a few across Great Britain, aren't there? Yes, I've never seen anyone put an exact number on it. but It used to be 2,500, but that was a very restricted uh, definition. And uh, I agree. The number of abandoned settlements of various kinds, you know, hamlets, farms and so on, is many thousands. Yes, I mean, there are counties like Leicestershire, which has, you could reel off well over 100 named lost villages. That's probably not the total. So it, it's probably, for Britain as a whole, I would imagine it's, some, it's somewhere in the order of 3,000. So most parts of the country have got a deserted medieval village somewhere nearby. And it might um, not necessarily be visible. <laughs> it might just be underneath the grounds that, you know, the grass has grown over the top of it over the centuries. In some cases, yes, that's true. I mean, one, one of the other sites that English Heritage owns in Yorkshire is Gainsthorpe. That is a tricky one to understand in a way, because although you've got the buildings that you can see on the surface in the same way that you can at Warren Percy, it is very much a fragment of a much larger village. So you don't get the full picture. One of the nice things about Warren Percy is that it's the village remains, the houses and the plots are fringed on every side by the edges of the arable fields. You can still see the, the ridges and furrows of the arable field. So you've got the whole thing. You've got it neatly framed by its, its fields, whereas Gainsthorpe, that's not the case. You've just got a little little fragment of what used to be there. There are other sites like, like Hound Tor down in the southwest where it's a very different sort of village. It's, it's just a hamlet, really. Again, very easy to see the houses there but relatively speaking, a very small settlement, just a, a few houses. But there you can see stone walls sticking up out of the ground. It's, Indeed, You, you yes. don't have to imagine where the houses were. It's, uh, they're, they're staring you in the face. They look as if they fell down, you know, uh, 50 years ago or something. Yes, and there are similar settlements in Scotland where you can walk into buildings that are still standing shoulder high. So, yes. Amazing. Depends where you are in the country. Mm. In terms of visiting these places, does one have to be careful with one's footing uh, and, uh, you know? Well, it's worth saying that before I encourage people to go out and look at their local deserted medieval village, that obviously many of them are on private land now and you have to do all the things that you would normally do. Ask ask the permission of the landowner and behave responsibly on, on that land. Watch out for bulls and so on. At Warren Percy, uh, it's open all year round, but after a a light shower, that chalk can be incredibly slippery. I know that because I've slid down many chalk hills in Land Rovers. So it is not without risk, yes. So how many medieval villages do English Heritage look after? There are only three villages that are explicitly in the care of English Heritage as medieval villages, which are Warham, Gainsthorpe and Hound Tor down in Devon. There are fragments of medieval villages in, in several other English heritage properties, but they're more about, for example, Belsay Castle has got little fragments of medieval settlement on the fringes of, of that parkland. So those are the three I, I would recommend. And in terms of visiting Warham specifically, when would you recommend a visit? The summer is not a good time this time of year, for example, because the grass gets very long and you, you can't see the earthworks very well because of the long grass. It's, it's, it's really best to go, you know, in sort of April or, um, or October or something. I was going to give a, a slightly more nuanced answer, <laughs> which is that if you, if you go in, in uh, midsummer, in fact, if you were to go on the 26th of June, You'd be going there on the anniversary of the day in 1948 that Maurice Beresford walked <laughs> there and sort of put medieval settlement back on the academic map. Yes. And he saw it in spite of the wrong grass. <laughs> it, yes, although apparently in those days it was grazed much shorter. Sheep are the answer. Indeed. Yeah, so we've changed from sheep to mm. cattle. I mean, as you say, if you go there in spring and autumn... From an archaeological point of view, it's much better because you've got the low light and you can see the humps and bumps much more clearly and you can make out the doorways of the houses, the individual rooms of the houses in some cases. I wouldn't recommend going there in the depths of winter because actually the microclimate on the walls can, you know, if you've got a few flakes of snow in York, you can often have knee-deep snow on the walls. So that's another risk. My favourite day to go there, and when I take guided tours around, I always make sure I coincide, 
is the 11th of November because that's St. Martin's uh-huh. Day and the church is dedicated to St. Martin. So that's a day when you can really imagine everybody out in their finery processing through the village and making merry and uh, you can imagine the village really alive. But there's also a theory, a really nice theory that I don't know how attractive you find this, Chris, but um, the idea that the church is dedicated to St. Martin because traditionally St. Martin's Day marks the end of the pastoral year. In other words, you, that's when you took your animals that had grazed through the summer back down to the lowlands and that that occasion would be celebrated with a feast and with a sort of market fair type thing. And so that the origins of the church's dedication relate to the very earliest origins of the village, somewhere between 650 and 850. Well, that's a very poetic end, actually. And um, I suppose we can also do our own dedication by dedicating this podcast to the memory of Warren Percy and to its continued visitation by people who are interested in its history. For people who are interested in visiting, presumably they can just go to the English Heritage website, go into the search icon and type in Warren Percy. So that's W-H-A-R-R-A-M, new word P-E-R-C-Y. That's it. And the site's open 365 days a year within daylight hours. It's still owned by a lord of the manor. So the land is not actually owned by English heritage. It's just looked after by English heritage. So do behave well when you go there. (laughs) Well, um, with all those um, fantastic images of uh, a lost but rediscovered site and plenty of rich architectural and archaeological history, thank you very much, gents, for taking the time to talk us through it all. It's been really illuminating. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to discuss the archaeological excavations taking place at Arthur's Stone in Herefordshire. I think that when so much investment has gone into this this mound with these massive stones and the construction of the whole thing, and this is a significant place in this community's uh, life. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>